Hello, this is Michael Stone, the host of We Earth Radio, where we have conversations that make a difference. We're committed to bringing you leading edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. In our programs, we look for positive solutions to local and global issues that leave you touched, moved, and inspired to action. Our weekly guests include local and global experts and concerned citizens working together to heal the wounds that separate, alienate, and marginalize people. Welcome, welcome to We Earth Radio. This is your host, Michael Stone. I am so excited about today's guest, Erin McMorrow, PhD. She's a certified yoga teacher, craniosacral therapist, and entrepreneur. She holds a PhD in policy planning and development from the University of Southern California, studied political and social thought at University of Virginia, served as the director of housing policy with the Los Angeles Coalition to End Hunger and Homelessness, and the regional coordinator for several progressive signature gathering campaigns in California. Now that's her straight bio. I wanna give you her real bio here. She says, who am I? I am an author, a guide, an artist, a woman. Like every other woman on the planet who doesn't know it yet, I'm a fierce feminine high priestess. I'm love. I'm one tiny piece of the pulsating fabric of the universe. The grand motion that inhales and exhales grows and dies and reinvents. I am birth, life, and death. I am you, I am me, I am us, and we are one. Welcome, Erin. <laughs> Thank you so much. I just love That's that so, so much. And I love your book, Grounded, A Fierce Feminine Guide to Connecting to the Soil and Healing from the Ground Up. Yeah. Wonderful book. I was so excited yeah. to get to have you on the show today. And, and uh, you know, I just want to start out to looking a little bit at your own evolution you know what mm. what was it that grew you into who wrote this book that's mm. like i say it yeah <laughs> thank you um it has been quite a journey it's the book took about seven years so uh, it's been basically my whole major part of my entire adult life <laughs> and uh, i would say the journey the spiritual journey really begins in 2013 when i graduate with my phd and at that point, I was studying urban planning and sustainability and sustainable cities. And I thought I was going to do like climate change work for cities. And I wrote my dissertation about it. And then as I describe in the book, there's this sort of like privileged woman breakdown moment that is like more and more common in our society these days. I was laughing with girlfriends about that yesterday, actually, where, you know, I thought I was going to get this job. I thought it was going to look like this. I was going to do this thing. And what happened is... Um, I actually found a volunteer group that turned out to grow into the organization that is now called Kiss the Ground um, that's working in the regenerative agriculture movement. And um, that led me to the soil, which I had a six year, you know, six years of PhD work and I had never heard of soil carbon sequestration in the climate conversation. It wasn't there yet. And so um, that really like struck me like lightning. And I started working on that, which I got brought into via urban gardening is what I thought I was doing in the first place. And so this, this soil thing just sort of took over me and I didn't know 
what I was going to do with it. I helped um, start and build the very beginnings of Kiss the Ground for the first like six months to a year. And then and then I had this like spiritual breakdown, like the the city job never came along. I got displaced from two houses, like gentrified out of my neighborhood. <laughs> um, everything was just kind of coming apart at the seams. And then I was uh, very fortunate to be able to go to Bali and do yoga teacher training, which is something that I had really wanted to do, but just thought it was irresponsible. And like I needed to get this job and be like a grown up person after all this studies and all these things and uh, a lot of identity and ego wrapped up in there and then I just went to Bali and let it shed and I just started to um, interact with the yin for the first time like I don't think I guess I liked yin yoga in LA a little but it was vague and then I really started to drop into the sense of um, of receiving and the feminine and then slowly the metaphors, the embodied part and the metaphors, the nature metaphors started to interweave with my interest in soil. And over the course of seven years, this evolves and evolves. And there are a lot of funny loop-de-loops where like I, I was writing about the divine feminine, calling it by name, but I didn't really figure out until like four years into the book that the divine feminine, um, that the soil is the oldest divine feminine metaphor of all time, which is hilarious. And I was <laughs> literally writing about the divine feminine using those words and the soil. And I didn't know until like a lot of the book was written where there were all of these hilarious kind of backwards and upside down aha moments that came along where I was like, you've got to be kidding me like that. But that's how spirit works. You know, it's just, um, we get the download when it's time and when we're ready and so yeah, I, I had my ego cracked and my identity cracked open and died many, many, many times over um, to sort of shed the idea of who I thought I was in 2013 and eventually allow this thing to channel through me. Um, and it also was all all consuming and all encompassing because it was such a strong spiritual call. I couldn't do anything else. So I had to just just do it no matter what it took. And so that, that also led me to bartending for two years in the middle to support it in all kinds of adventures. <laughs> like, <laughs> all the things one does. Yeah. Multiple dark nights of the soul. <laughs> many, many, many. <laughs> like, what you just said though, is really important because most people think of soil as dirt, you know, and, and not much beyond that. And what I loved the minute I read your book was yes, Climate change and soil, somebody actually gets it. Talk about the relationship between climate change and soil. Yeah, yes. So I, for me, it was like the fact that the soil was alive at all was a watershed moment. I was like, what, there's microscopic life in the soil. I didn't know that. And a lot of people don't. I think like avid gardeners do know that because you have to like work with the soil and populate things like this and the nematodes and the worms and the things if you're really into gardening and compost. But otherwise, yeah, we, we just think it's dirt and we don't know. Um, and I think the climate conversation has been driven by the emissions, um, the notion, the story of emissions for so long that what I came to learn was that emissions are only one part of the story. And there's actually like a zoom out Thing. And this will get us back into the cycles of nature. So it'll get us back to that, these metaphors. But what I learned was that basically in like kindergarten terms, there's a carbon cycle. First of all, a carbon cycle. Like I was like, I'm sure I learned that in third grade or something, but <laughs> I never, I did, this is not at the top of my mind. And it's, and that it worked like the water cycle. So it's ever, you know, it's, um, uh, finite and the carbon moves around in the carbon cycle, which was not something I thought about. Like the carbon conversation with emissions was always linear. You know, it was always up and out, this sort of thing, just the visual of it and the concept of it. And 
when we start to think in cycles, then it was like, oh, there's like the earth part of the cycle. There's the air, the atmosphere part and like the water part very roughly. And right now, what I found out was we have, obviously we have way too much carbon in the atmosphere. We know that. And then there's a whole part in the book about ocean acidification, which is a huge um, climate conversation that's not mainstream, but basically the oceans have been absorbing all of our excess carbon from the atmosphere for quite some time. And they are actually now becoming corrosive. So our oceans are becoming corrosive. They're getting to saturation point where they can't hold anymore. And then the soils are like, I would call it like the broken part of the cycle where, um, the carbon actually wants to be in the soil. Soil loves carbon. Soil needs carbon. The microscopic organisms need the carbon to be in the soil. And we are killing those microscopic um, organisms. And by doing so, we're releasing a whole, like tons and tons and tons of um, carbon more into the atmosphere. So the way that we're doing agriculture and the way that we're doing overtilling and spraying pesticides and uh, so many things about industrial agriculture are actually greatly exacerbating the climate change um, problem an opportunity because uh, because we are killing the soil. And so it's like, if you look at it from a cyclical perspective, it's like, oh, what we need is an inhale. What we need is to heal the soil. And then the plants will naturally pull this carbon back into the soil because that's what they do. Um, so that's this was all like mind boggling to me. <laughs> in the beginning and it is to everybody who hears it for the first time you know because the the narrative has been so over dominated by the emissions conversation which is only one piece well i love the way you tie all these things together so i'm just gonna a quote of yours just to get us started the root of the climate crisis is the invitation to heal our individual and collective root chakra. Mm. And tell us what you mean by this. Let's get into this. Yeah, thank you. So this is also me in Bali learning about chakras for the first time in my life. Like I had no, that was very, there's a journey of what I call coming out of the woo closet or like first finding the woo and then, and then sort of hiding it for some time and then coming out of the woo closet. But in the beginning, I was this you know, very heady person that came out of a PhD program. And I had, again, my identity and everything tied up in here. Then I go to Bali and we start to learn about like root and then sacral and that there's this sort of energetic archetypal map in our bodies. And it took me a while. At first I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about all of that. <laughs> And then, and then I started to do the actual breath work and the yoga work and the energetic work and it was working, you know, like something happens where it's like, whoa, there's something to this. And I, I started to get into it more and um, the metaphors, I mean, they never end, but the metaphor of the actual root chakra is like chakra number one. And it's um, down like below our genitals in that sort of area. And it's our root to the earth. So it's energetically how we root back to mother earth. And um, so many of us have root trauma. So if you look at, uh, well, first of all, the root chakra stands for home, identity, tribe, security. And when you look at the United States, for example, a lot of the, the intergenerational trauma that is up right now that we're collectively healing has so much to do, I would argue, with root trauma because we're looking at either immigration, so we're moving from homelands, or unfortunately, um, genocide and slavery are both massive, massive root traumas. And so being separated from our land, being separated from tribe, home, identity. Um, and so many of us within our own families have uh, root trauma just in terms of the way that we interact with our families and the trauma that's been passed along and not feeling safe. And there's also something about um, not feeling safe and worthy in general. It's also worthiness, self-worth. Um, when we don't feel safe 
and worthy in the world, that's actually the fear that is driving, I would argue, capitalism and a lot of, and like, so back to the emissions and things like that, um, we're, what I say in the book is that we're sort of racing around constantly trying to find this worthiness outside of ourselves. And that's what's driving so much of the destruction that's going on on the planet, because what we actually need to do is turn inward, find, uh, find our connection back to the earth, remember these sort of original ways, the original stories that humans have passed down in every culture for all of time. And, and I feel like that's where energetically, both um, individually and collectively, that's where our major healing gets to be done. And it's not a coincidence that we are destroying the microscopic organisms in the soil and that that's releasing a bunch of carbon because the soil is like the literal manifestation of this metaphor, right? And so it's all, it's all connected. Yeah, well, besides poisoning the soil, we're losing about exactly. an eighth of an inch of topsoil a year. Mm-hmm. I want to mark that I'd like to get back to embodiment, but mm. this thing you mentioned about the fear, I think is so important because mm. what do you think the genesis of the idea that nature is dangerous, that it's mm. fearful, that it's our enemy and needs yeah. to be tamed and, and captured and it's for our use. You know, it's a big mm. box lumber yard out there. Yeah. Where, where did that start? I think, so there's no exact pinpoint on exactly what happened, but my, my thought is that at some point the collective ego got ran loose. <laughs> so basically all of indigenous cultures all over the world for all of time have always honored the great mother because the great mother metaphor is so obvious and so directly connected to our survival, our security, our foundation, our home. And um, so I'll just, I'll explain this. I do it in every single one because it's so profound and so simple and it, it blew my mind and continues to that the metaphor is literally like you part the healthy soil, the rich fertile soil, place the seed, plant the seed, insert the seed, cover the soil. And then in this womb-like soil in the darkness, life gestates. And then at some point life is born and then we have life again. And then, and that's the birth part. And then the plant grows and expresses. And then at some point dies and then comes back around to the cycle into compost to re-nourish the soil. So it comes back home to mama, you know, and back and then all the way. And this is the life um, birth, death, rebirth cycle that runs through all of nature. And all of indigenous wisdom has always been earth-based spirituality like this and has always honored this mother and the mother metaphor in like practical um, terms and in metaphorical terms. And so somewhere along the line, the ego is always there in all of spiritual practices. And it's sort of like what we, what we do is we tend to it, we integrate it, we work with it when we have our ways in place and when we have community in place and we have our practices in place, we sort of dance with it. Um, But if we lose track of those, the ego runs amok. And when the ego runs amok, it takes over. And the primary thing that it thinks is that it can own things. So private property, I think, is like that that point. Whenever that happened in history, when we decided as humans that we can own land, which is not the case, we cannot own land, (laughs) and that we can own people, which is certainly not the case, we cannot own people, um, that's where, that's that seed of um, these origin stories that part from the mother where we start to get a single male god in the sky rather than like an earth mother and from there stems a tremendous amount of um of violence unfortunately and i talk about some of the core origin stories that were rewritten so you have zeus written into um for hera was um, a pre-hellenic indigenous triple goddess and she did not have a partner and then when 
um, conquerors came in, they came in and rewrote the mythology because that's the way you basically control consciousness and rewrite um, things so that you can own, air quotes, own land and people to take over. And from there, you know, goes colonization. You know, then we have a whole lot of ourselves manifesting from these kind of broken origin stories, what manifests into tremendous amounts of violence and trauma. And then the fear that, you know, through gener, we have so many thousands of years of of generations of trauma now that like of course we're carrying embodied fear because it's running through everything and so the healing work that we're doing right now is no joke <laughs> it's a big it's a big task and a big call it's interesting you know trying to answer that question when the perpetrators are the ones that write the history that's mm. difficult but at the same time i think looking back at 5000 years ago approximately or was it yeah. 10 i can't remember now it's been a long it's time it's approximate yeah uh, but in that era when agriculture came in mm -hmm. and then there was a collective uh, you know this is my field this is my and then you have to buy that and then we invented money and but it seems like the severing of our connection from nature mm -hmm. happened during that shift from hunter gatherer to agriculture this disconnection I, I love the way you explain the disconnection with the sacred feminine. In the book, you say something that the United Nations has said that Paul Hawken and many others have written about that one of the key things, if you look at the 10 top things in the hundred of Paul's book, uh, uh, down, draw down, right? It's the empowerment of women and, and girls is fundamental to turning the time on climate. Would you explain that so people can really get that? It's yeah. so important. It is. And it's, um, I try to keep it kind of big picture, but across the board, it's like, uh, and this is, again, it's been studied by the UN. It's been studied and, and documented that women and girls on many levels, when they have education and when they have rights and it's reproductive rights, it's education rights, it's civil rights, it's all the rights. Um, the whole society fares better, first of all. Um, communities take care of nature better. There's um, lots of data around uh, small lot farming and things like this. And it's usually when it's run by the women, it is more sustainable. And then in this case, you're gonna get essentially healthier soil on the on the micro level. And all of this goes like micro to macro, macro and goes back and forth where it's like everything that isn't working on the small scale also isn't working on a large scale. Um, and then we also have like, a huge amounts of sexual violence against women. So again, back to that awful origin story where it got rewritten is um, they unfortunately wrote Zeus in as like a shape-shifting rapist. And that is the like primary relationship origin story of Western culture is how it's written currently. And what we have, I would say as an offshoot of that is all of this violence against women. And it goes on and on about the archetypes and uh, abuse and, and the um, nature of marriage, you know, there's all, all of these things, marriage and property and these relationships. But basically, the bottom line is that when women and girls are empowered with uh, resources, rights, particularly sexual rights, so sexual reproduction, obviously, like when women um, have wherewithal over their own sexual rights, they don't um, necessarily, they don't make 15 babies and things like this, which is happening in some places in the world. And they're not forced to have babies, which they are in places in the world, which obviously overpopulation is part of the conversation as well. So there's so many levels. It's like the health of the community, the health of the land within the community, the food within the community, um, the just the general health, if you can imagine um, healthy, educated women and girls just inside of a community, just how much stronger a community will be on a, in a really basic level and then multiply that around the world um, where we don't have, 
if you imagine like we don't have this kind of sexual violence and repression and oppression all over the world, you're going to have much healthier communities all over the world and you're going to have a stronger relationship to nature and to the soil. And that multiplied across the lands, also like forests, taking care of forests, things like this comes back around to soil carbon sequestration in the technical terms, right? Where it's like, okay, when we're healing the soil and we're healing communities, that carbon is coming back out of the atmosphere and coming back into the soil where it belongs and into plants and helping us have more nutritious food, et cetera. So there's so many webs and tendrils. It is, it's, it's a um, mycorrhizal in its way. You know, it's yeah. like everything is connected. That's yeah. right. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's really interesting. I I've been more than 30 years involved in the environmental movement. I covered conference, the climate change conferences from Rio on many of them. I stopped going to them after Paris. I just mm -hmm. gave up. But the one thing that nobody ever talks about that you just alluded to, but it's always skimmed over is population. You know, I've mm -hmm. had, what's his name, limits of growth and mm -hmm. population control people and all of those people on my show. It's like a subject that nobody wants to touch. And I think that's somehow related to the fact that with a extractive economic system where you have to keep growing in order to keep people purchasing and doing that, that there's something there. And then there's the Catholic side, mm -hmm. but it's never, it's rarely ever addressed in, mm -hmm. in the climate circles. Yeah. I think it also, there's a pain point there, again, with reproductive rights and um, also human rights. You know, there's just a yeah. huge, there are things that don't get discussed because major powers that be don't want them discussed, you know? And so there's, there's all kinds of, I mean, I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but it's like looking at population from a sense of like, how do we um, shift that tide from an empowering place rather than like control more control of women's behavior and sexuality, right? Um, because that's the one, that's the way it's been done in some places where it's like, okay, just have one child or something like that to do like population control. Um, this is the other way around. It's like, no, no, other way around, um, empowering women and girls to make their own choices uh, for their own bodies and have education and have access um, to whatever kinds of just birth control. And there's another conversation even within there where um, there's a, there, there has been a major disconnect between this is on the magic side conversation around like the menstrual cycle, for example, like I didn't learn that there are like four separate stages of the menstrual cycle and each has their seasons essentially. And that if I align with the season that I'm in and I design my work around it and I design my rituals and practices around it, my life works a lot better and my body feels better and all kinds of magical things occur when I am aligned with my cycle. But I 38 years, I went through my life not knowing that because that's not something Western society teaches. In fact, it shames the menstrual cycle, which is actually part of that dark goddess conversation, which is, you know, kind of going all over the place here. But the exile of the dark goddess mythologically and then psychologically and archetypally gets us, lands us in a place where we shame. There's so much sex shaming and guilt. And you, you mentioned the church um, that you try to get reproductive rights and education into that space, it's too painful of a space because it hasn't been dealt to emotionally or psychologically, right? You're like putting your finger on the pain point when it, it hasn't been dealt to. So that's again, back to the healing work and the somatic work. And then the practical work of um, us reconnecting and re-educating ourselves about things like the menstrual cycle. And also like herbs, you know, <laughs> like all of these magical things that we have been cut off from through 
frankly, witch hunts and things like this and history of violence where wherever we were most deeply connected to our magic and most deeply connected to the earth, those are the places that were hit the hardest with violence and mm. backed by violence. And that's why that's why I say the patriarchy is coll the collective ego externalized because it's like this this fear-based cloud you know it, it's embodied by humans but really as a as a thought form or something it's just like fear-based right. cloud that the second this magic and the true nature of nature the, our true relationship to nature as humans comes through and the magic um it comes down with violence and so that's why we feel like we can't speak into it and that's why i had this like hand on throat thing that i describe in the book that's like whenever as soon as i started using the word patriarchy in the first place because that didn't come around till pre me too 2017 um I just felt compelled, like I had to speak into this concept and this word and this thing. And I felt like a somatic hand around my throat. And then I, I told other women in circle and they felt the same thing. And we were all freaked out because we were like, whoa, that's a real thing. The actual feeling that if we speak into this truth and speak about this magic, um, we will, there will be violence. And then there's also a few psychological layers of like, you'll lose your job, like you'll be ridiculed, you'll lose your credibility, all of these things. So that's like the muck that we're kind of wading through in this healing work, I feel like. It's interesting how men have been um, suppressed in their emotions and women mm. have been suppressed so much in their voice, right, right. Yeah. self-expression. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, there's this what I see it as a, as someone who's taught and practiced shamanism for a long time, that we're in a, a global cultural soul loss. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, you know, you, you could look at it as trauma and I'm really happy to see all the things that are coming up. We've had Thomas Hubel and a lot of amazing people on that are really dealing with the trauma issue, but it is, it is a soul loss. Yeah. And you talk about the the interdependent relationship between soil, climate and soul recovery. Mm. So I'd love to like work with yeah. that with you a little bit. Uh, yeah. Yes. Thank you. And it is I'm feeling um, in this moment. It's interesting. I have I have an elderly cat who's at the end of her life. And so I'm really um, she's sick. And so I'm in this grief space. I'm in this dark goddess space, which is so fascinating being in the work that I'm in, especially with the conversation about um, death as transformation and the things that plant medicine teach us about death. Um, I'm really having it tested in the 3D, right? This is like we're in the real, where the rubber meets the road of transformation and love and oneness and in these things um, that runs up against the idea of a linear, like beginning of life, end of life, you know, it stops and ends. <laughs> and there isn't this like flowing oneness, like the carbon cycle, you know, that we continue to move through and we continue to cycle through. I think without that perspective, what I'm finding in my personal experience in this moment that's reflecting in my work, and obviously I write about complex so that's like, that is the dark, that's the dark goddess part of the cycle, right? It's the winter, it's the death part of the cycle. I'm finding that Western society in a general sense has so little to offer in terms of grief, not only so little to offer. I mean, it's, it's back into this like blind spot, suppressed, oppressed, shame, don't talk about it. Because when I I'm sharing about what I'm experiencing. I'm finding it bounce off of people's triggers, right? Because they have unprocessed grief because our society doesn't know how to process grief. Like we don't have, we don't have rituals. We don't have community. I'm doing research back into like Celtic grief rituals to find something, you know, to see like, what, okay, how has this been done for all of time? Because obviously it's there somewhere. The complete 
lack of that conversation, I feel like, again, it's, it's driven by fear. So we're running from something all the time. And something in there, in that muck, in that like dark goddess and that exiled like winter part of the cycle, also like menstruation, also sexuality, all these things that get thrown into the shadow. That's the soul retrieval that we're working on in Western culture right now, because like we can't be human without grief ritual and death. It's ever, you know, it's part of life. It's, it's the part of the cycle. You can't just like cut it out and then shove it. <laughs> And then think and then see what happens. What we get then is completely traumatized by the process of death and transformation. And then we pass that trauma along. So I feel like that's what we're sitting in. And then back to that kind of root conversation as well. It's like healing this sense of home identity tribe. That's part of reintegrating ritual and practice. I think it's part of reintegrating plant medicine, which has been criminalized, of course. <laughs> it's like, of course we would be criminalizing like the magical entities that support us, that, all, that have supported humans for all of time. You know, we think, um, again, we're disconnected. We think that we're in charge of the plant kingdom, you know, and the fungus kingdom and things like this, which is completely backwards. So there's so much soul retrieval there, so much healing work of like, the whole exercise is to remember, you know, the whole exercise is to call ourselves back in. And when we call ourselves back in and we return to ritual and we return to plants and we return to community, then we can face our grief, you know, then we can sit with it and let it let it move in our bodies and then we can hold each other in it as it goes and it becomes communal instead of isolating which is what it is right now yeah i think it's not just what we're running from it's also what we're chasing after mm -hmm. and that you know that keeps us from being able to go inward we're so outward focused like yes this car, this house, this man, this woman is going to bring me happiness if I can just get that. And it always is taking us out of being here. It's like we live in where we should be or where we want to be and very seldom where we actually are. Right, right. Well, that's the worthiness. I mean, that's back to the root again. It's like when we feel that when we're connected to spirit and to the earth, that's when we can feel that worthiness. It comes through because it's the truth in our in our being and it's our birthright, right? It comes with. But what's happened is we've been told a different story and we've been told a story that says you're not worthy until you have A, B, C, D or whatever. And then of course, whenever we get there, it doesn't work because that's not, that's not the truth. And so until we can heal this, this root trauma and until we can get back to the earth and remember, like I feel incredibly blessed that I, I touch the earth and I feel the energy of mother nature, right? Of big mama. And I feel supported by her, by that energy. And without that, it's scary, you know, <laughs> like we, you know, without this sort of knowing this inner knowing and this wisdom that has been passed, that's why the wisdom is passed down generation over generation to remember. So we can remember our worthiness and come back to it. And when we're there, we don't need all of this other stuff, but we're, you're right. Absolutely. We have a collective worthiness wound. And so we're just running and running, um, chasing and running from and running to, you know, something that is outside of us. And that's, it's the opposite of the root. It's the opposite of coming home to oneself. It's great to see that, um, I think it started in Japan, the forest breathing and the earthing mm. thing that's starting, that people are actually really tuning into that, you know, laying down on the ground. Thing. <laughs> um, Absolutely. It's a great thing. I, I want to go back to grief for a second, I think. Mm. It's one thing to grieve 
an animal, like you're losing your cat. I've lost my dogs. I got my dogs laying on his back. And, and, you know, it would be a big thing to lose him for me. And I've lost many dogs. And it's another uh, to grieve a parent or a grandparent, even more to grieve the loss of a child. How do you grieve 200 species a day that are becoming extinct? Mm. I mean, I don't think anybody has an answer for that. I think this I'm, is not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I said it to like, yeah, people yeah. to feel that exactly, you know, yeah. impossibility to, right. because we're so shut down right. and so not in touch. You're talking about the carbon cycle and, and the hydrological cycle. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that's beautiful about it is it's the hidden forces that are behind it. You can draw it out and say, yeah, this happens and this goes here and that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, the hy- hydrological, you know, you've got the, what do they call it? The great divide mm-hmm. in the continent where mm-hmm. the rivers run in the opposite yeah. directions, you know, and mm-hmm. say, oh, the water goes this way and that way. But nobody takes into account the evaporation and the movement and, and the forces and the currents and how they how they move around and trillions of tons of water are are displaced to different continents every day. Yeah. We are, we don't pay attention to those right. kinds of forces and right. and I think the ability to grieve is connected to that right. kind of sensitivity. I think it's mm-hmm. a sensitivity. Yes, I agree. It feels like a tuning in, you know, when we're tuned in, we can feel it in our bodies, right back to embodiment and like sensory kind of somatic practices. um, Because we're harboring so much uh, unprocessed grief in our bodies, we're so shut down, it has to, the body has to numb if you if you don't tend to all that pain there, then and then we medicate and then we do everything. And I actually we were talking about how we both moved just very recently. I'm in a different place than I was before. And the place that I was before was incredibly blessed to have an incredible soundscape, like the birds and the little animals. I was out in Topanga on a mountain, which is really nice. And then, and and then um, the stars, like I had a starscape every single night. So I spent every single night staring at the stars and where I am now, I I believe it feels like I'm getting a tour of something else. You know, it's like, okay, notice what that's like. And then, and I'm in a lovely place now, but I I can't see the stars the same way. I'm more in the city and the sense of like watching TV and things like this, like watching TV instead of staring at the stars, there's a sensory, what I'm finding is sensory overload because I'm very sensitive because I've opened and I've done so much of this work. And so my body um, senses all of this stuff and car noise. I mean, I'm so sensitive to car noise by now because it's so jarring. The body's like, ah, you know, threat ah. <laughs> when it's sensed in. But that's why we are so escapist collectively because it's too much. Like if we don't learn how to process this in ritual and maybe in medicine or with breath work or with yoga or whatever it is that serves your body or all of those things together, sound or anything, um, then we have to numb out. There's no other way for the body to be. And almost all of us are numbed out right now. So we have an entire society of people who can't feel. And then, yeah, how are you supposed to feel grief? I've certainly sat, I, there's one really beautiful 
plant medicine ceremony where I was down on the ground where I often am. And in a little like ant, you know, went by a little bug of some kind. And I suddenly found myself weeping for the insect kingdom because I could feel the hit that they're taking via the pesticides and everything. And, and there's also a piece because within that perfection of the universe and the great mother and all the things like they're safe, they're safely held. Like they're taking this awful hit. And at the same time, it's to teach us and they'll be okay. Their souls are okay, (laughs) you know, but it's like, do we have to push things so far? Our lesson is like, do we have to push things to that kind of breaking point to crack ourselves open, to remember how to feel? And I think 2020 did a lot of that this year or last year, where it was just like, just like in personal work and the macro and the micro, if you just deny and deny and shove and shove and escape and escape at some point, there will be a breakdown and a break open, like inevitably those dark nights of the soul. And the more you can align and do the work ahead of time, the less full breakdown you get, you know, the big breakdown comes when you've not been listening (laughs) for a while. When you're in, it's like you kind of tune and you can like flow and you can just follow your directions. But if you're like completely numbed out, that's why we have these spiritual breakdowns. Well, you know, I, I, I think that part of, we don't want people to grieve because it will reveal that numbness. It's like your husband died a year ago. Why don't you go out on a date? Yeah. No, like no sensitivity, but if that person were grieving, then that would be a threat to my ego, to my narrative that says, you know, buckle up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're sort of, we're delusional in this sense where we're like, also because we've forgotten about death and the whole transformation thing. So if we think it's linear, like imagine how scary that is to face our own death, um, which is a job of the medicine to help us remember, right? It helps us face our death so that we can remember this thing. If we don't, we're in terror. And I'm finding this in my personal life. Um, I'm really blessed that I'm doing these conversations right now because I then am supported by the community of people who get what I'm talking about and are and are here in presence in grief and I can share it. Um, and I find like it's astounding how much it triggers people around, loved ones, friends of mine, you know, people I know and respect. Um, it's it's really amazing how much it's shaking that sort of cage, you know, just by being, just by me being in grief, by me sharing about it. It's it's profound what we're facing here with the kind of grief that gets to be felt by the collective somehow. <laughs> and I don't know how this is going to be done. Yeah, yeah, and I don't mean this in a sexist way, but you really turned me on. When I read your book, <laughs> I went, oh God, I got to get this woman on my show right away. <laughs> it's a creative life force, you know? It's uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of that, let's talk about the sacred and masculine and the sacred Mm -hmm. feminine, because that's so misunderstood. And I think it's about male bodies and female bodies and share your thoughts with us on that. Yeah. Thank you. And I love, I love this part. I think it's on page three where I'm like the masculine and the feminine energies are, are just that they're energies and in a sense, they're archetypes and they're completely genderless and that we all in fact have both running through. It's, it's like yin yang, you know, we've got them running through us in balance. And they also, these forces run through all of nature. They're, they're everywhere all the time. And the way, the best way that I describe it actually comes from a tarot teacher named Lindsay Mack. And she describes the masculine as like mountain energy. So it's the, 
the protector and also the initiator. And this, it's this power of just by being. And then the feminine as like oceanic energy. So it's fluid and it's receptive and it's emotional. It also changes and they're equally powerful. Nobody would say the ocean is more powerful than the mountain or the mountain is more powerful than the ocean. It just is, you know? And so I, I, that is helpful for me to sort of conceptualize. And then there's another piece that loops back to patriarchy where it's like this toxic masculine or whatever you want to call it. It really like patriarchy is not a perfect word, nor is toxic masculine, but it's that externalized ego that has taken over. Basically, it feels like the healthy masculine, the sacred masculine and corrupted it and turned it into something else, which all genders and it's genderless are, are, have been answering to. And, you know, so many people like trying to answer to this toxic masculinity whatever gender we're in. And that's showing up everywhere. I mean, that's also, again, it's what's driving capitalism and things like this. So it's like to align with this really broken system, we have to behave in this energetically kind of broken way. And that's what's also being healed that when, um, when we really get in and start to first feel into these energies at all, become aware of them and then start to play with them and then start to notice like I'm still deep in healing. I would say both my masculine and feminine quite a lot. And so are my clients. And so is pretty much everybody I know who's in the work um, because it's what we're doing collectively as well. It's, it's reintroducing the healthy divine feminine and the masculine. It's also giving and receiving. So it's like um, the masculine is giving and the feminine is receiving and there's no taking, like there's no taking in nature. <laughs> I say this all the time. That's not a thing. It's all giving and receiving. So there's this flow. It's this beautiful like tantric flow. And you, like that's why we have like an archetypal map with the chakras. And then we have these energies of balance and it's how we can, it's a way of navigating too. You know, are we off balance? Are we too far in one direction or another or something totally toxic? That's like, we're way in our ego and we get to like invite ourselves back. Something you don't know about me probably is that I've been a five rhythms teacher for many years. Oh, amazing. <laughs> I love it. So when you're talking, you know, I'm hearing Dave Gabrielle and thinking, you know, the, the first rhythm is flowing, which is the mm. feminine. And yeah. it's about our connection to the earth and it's about mm. receiving and taking in and flow. And the second rhythm is staccato. It's the masculine. It's about the fire and mm -hmm. the self-expression and giving. Yeah. Yeah. But the third rhythm is chaos mm -hmm. when the masculine and feminine when the lines and the circles yeah. come together yeah. and it's about dissolving contradiction mm -hmm. and, yeah. I, and, and i love that sense of awakening the two but mm -hmm. recognizing that there's no right or wrong masculine and feminine it's, yeah. it, it, it's it's dissolving contradiction mm -hmm. and and you know when i think about relationships I'm just doing a course with my teacher, Thomas Hubel and mm -hmm. Terry Real right now. It's so beautiful talking about the healing that takes place by bringing a little awareness into a relationship and how those triggers yeah. are such huge portals for healing for us Absolutely. in relationship. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting. It just came up with a client literally today, this entire thing, <laughs> like the previous hour, of course. And what, what came up is um, a friend of mine is working in the alchemy of chaos and that the one of the original definitions of chaos is the place where all possibility exists. Yeah. So it's the void. It's the great void um, where we Western culture think of chaos is like random bullshit you know <laughs> it's like and it's like no no it's chaos is actually that potent void you know it's that it's also that we are so uncomfortable with the unknown we're so uncomfortable with the void it's why we're always trying to fill some unknown hole you know control. control yeah, yeah. exactly 
Yeah. yeah. So it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. That actually yeah. helps me with my con- concepts too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this month we reached 420 parts per million yeah. of carbon in the atmosphere. Tell us why that number is significant and how we can begin to generate negative carbon emissions that you talk about in your book. Yeah, four back. I don't must have been in school. I can't even remember. But three fifty was the number. Three fifty was three fifty parts per million was like the safe number. And I remember when we crossed four hundred, and the fact that we're up this high now is like. I mean, it's that's where we were headed. You know, we're definitely like fulfilling that. Um, unfortunately, there's also there's a number that's um, two degrees Celsius or one point five degrees Celsius. If we were in Paris, um, where it's also the sort of like consensus of climate scientists to say like that's there's not really a safe zone that's kind of ridiculous but to to the best of our measurements and things that we're kind of doing to explain this to the general public that that past 1.5 is a big danger and and past two degrees celsius warmer globally um is disastrous like like unthinkable disaster which i do i put a lot of the unthinkable disaster in the book and it it does it has that existential sort of panic thing to it. And so that's why I think we, there's something to facing it, you know, and also in being present to this kind of existential panic. And then also the flip side is like, the whole book is about how much hope there is. So to speak to how do we get that carbon out of the atmosphere, it's primarily to heal the soil. Like certainly to lower our fossil fuel emissions is a major piece. But I even talk about like the legacy load of carbon, which means that if we were to stop all of our emissions Um, Like today, I want to say it would go, uh, we would still be barreling past two degrees. And had we stopped in 2007, I think is the statistic in 2007, had we stopped to zero, um, we would still be barreling forward. So we actually need to inhale. That's why drawdown is so powerful. We actually need to pull more than that down. Never mind, stop putting it up, you know, um, in all the various ways, both through fossil fuel emissions and through agriculture, the way that we're doing it. And so really the whole book is about how do we then repair both our own energetic kind of root chakras, which is necessary to get this work done, and also start healing the soil. So through compost, through gardening, through um, amending the soil, through changing the way we do industrial agriculture, which is obviously a big job. And there's there's a big complicated policy conversation and all kinds of things going on. And it's it's necessary. Like the way that we are dealing with soil now is overtilling, leaving it bare, killing the microscopic life, putting synthetic replacements in that don't work as well. We're getting less nutritious food. You know, there's all of these, all of these things. Runoff is a part of this. Um, desertification is a part of it. When you kill the soil, it can no longer hold moisture and water and, and the soil cleans the water. You know, so we need the healthy microscopic life to clean the water. And once again, of course, nature works in, in concert, <laughs> you know, so you start killing one thing and there's this whole, this whole set of things that go awry. So it's on many levels. It's also forestation and ecosystem restoration, like all the way across the board, all the ways of healing the land. I feel like as much as we need to, to slow down and stop emissions, healing with the land is the spiritual imperative as well. And it's the place where mother nature really it gives her the opening to work with us when we're working with her. And she actually heals incredibly quickly, like miraculously when we are working in alignment with her. So that's what I, that's what I call for in the book. Okay. Aaron McMorrow, I want to say one thing about what you said, because I'm listening to the listeners listening and (laughs) this is not a doom and gloom book. I just Mm. want to make it really clear that could, you know, some of the things you just said would go, well, I'm not going to read that. Yeah. Why would I want to read about all of that? No, this is, this is, this is a healing book Mm. 
to bring us back into balance and how we can do it and how individual, the individual can make a contribution and not be so overwhelmed by the enormity of the problem, but actually realize we can do it right here ourselves. And it's such a good book. And I want to mention again, it's called Grounded, A Fierce Feminine Guide to Connecting the Soil and Healing from the Ground Up. So I just needed to put that in. Yeah, thank you. Because <laughs> <laughs> I want people to read this book. It's wonderful, yeah. So yeah, that, that really is the through line is that. It's that hope, actually. It's the primary message, you know. But it also is like, let's face the big scary monster. You know, let's look at it and not deny it. And then look at how much there is that we can do and how simple some of the things that we can do are, you know, but to change things. I, I remember a cartoon when I was a kid, actually, Pogo. And it said, I, I meant the end of the enemy and it is us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about oceans. You know, I've talked to a lot of people that are working on ocean issues, but ocean acidification loss, you know, since 1950, 90% of all the fish, large fish are gone and the acid issue and the coral issue. Yeah. What can we do? And what's your take on, I mean, again, you've talked about the big picture, but Mm. like our oceans, our fish. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's so many parts and I'd say in the cyclical things, still it's back to the soil because even like runoff, like industrial agricultural runoff, for example, that causes dead zones in the ocean still comes from the way we're dealing with soil. It's a da- literally a downstream problem, like literal. <laughs> and so it's like when we have these very unhealthy agricultural practices, like up this river, all of that stuff makes its way into the ocean. And when the soil is not healthy, it can't hold the water. So the water comes down and then also drags all of these chemicals into the ocean and is killing things off. So it's coming from every direction, but ocean acidification, like I said, is also from the oceans absorbing so much carbon from the atmosphere. And so everything we've already talked about affects that greatly, where it's still all about healing the land and the soils and reforestation and changing the way we do agriculture, um, small lot agriculture and empowering women and girls and all these things that need to be done on the land will help us get this sort of round the world small lot agriculture and a shift in agriculture that will help us a lot. And then as for the individual, there's, there's small things like compost, you know, lots of people I know do compost and lots of people that I know shockingly don't, even though they know at this point where it's like, um, my agent actually learned she's in Manhattan and she learned that she could drop off her food waste for her food scraps for compost at the place where she picked up her fresh fruits and vegetables. So her like local farmer's market in Manhattan, she could just do it. So one step, you know, and she also learned that she can keep the scraps in the freezer, which kept the food scraps out of the trash, which gives her less Manhattan trash, which is a big deal. And it doesn't smell. So there were all of these like immediately from this one tiny step of putting these food scraps into her thing. um, She was able to solve all these problems and feel like she was contributing as well. And major cities, San Francisco has a great composting composting program, but many don't. So one thing, if you're really gung-ho and you want to go advocacy style, you can advocate within your neighborhood, your homeowners association, community garden, or even bigger like city level, regional level. Composting at that level is going to be really important. There's no reason why 
we shouldn't be composting at that level. That's just a really basic, but it is like the small things like take three breaths (laughs) for yourself, you know, get back into your body, do something small, like compost. And then the things we've all heard, like paying attention to where our food comes from, you know, if you can, if, if it's, if it's available to you, even talking to the farmers or get connected to the farmers, finding farmers that are healing the soil and supporting them. Obviously donating to organizations that do this kind of work, that helps all kinds of little um, things that one individual can absolutely do that absolutely make a difference. You know, one of the things I told my daughter the other day, you know, she's been having a rough time in her relationship. And I think I said, sweetheart, you need to get a plant and make mm-hmm. sure it thrives. Yeah. I mean, just that, mm-hmm. just that, when yeah. you're going through a hard time, get a plant mm-hmm. and just, make sure it thrives, take care of it. hundred percent. Yeah. I did that in 2020, the beginning of the, um, of the shutdown. The first thing I did was go get a bunch of tiny indoor plants and I made a little indoor garden. (laughs) And I also did, I shared a lot of this on social media where I learned all of this funny stuff that I didn't know about, like how you can grow from a carrot top. So you just cut the carrot in this way and then you grow and you get a whole new plant and all kinds of things like this, that actually I got so much joy out of trying these new things that are so silly and kind of like kindergarten level, but, but in a moment of such giant transformation in society, we're all feeling this thing, this, this tiny practice, you know, it was a little we need kindergarten level. We need yeah. that yeah. curiosity and that wonder and awe mm-hmm. of, yeah, the top of a pineapple starts growing yeah. avocado <laughs> pit. that, yeah, that connects us because it's so hard for people to cope with and stay focused on the enormity of yeah. it all. You know, people would rather turn their head away and they might have a thought like, oh, I should turn the water off instead of leave it running. Or I had a, uh, she was my adopted mother, this ama- amazing woman. She was a someone that uh, worked with Martin Luther King. She was a freedom writer mm. and on Oprah just before she died. At, at her funeral, and she danced with me from 82 to 95, I had her dancing at 95 and we had a whole party in PJing. And and her, her caretaker at the end said this thing that was kind of funny, but it was, it, she was a Quaker too and started a lot of Quaker schools, but she was taking care of her and she said, how many pieces of toilet paper you have? Do you want four? four? And she said, no, three, no, two, no, one. Give me one, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that's like, you know, I mean, it was a funny thing to say at the funeral, <laughs> but it was a sign of her whole life of being an activist like that. No, I don't need four seats of toilet paper. Yeah. That's a tree. She, she said to her, that's a tree. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think that's one of the things, Aaron, that we lack is the ability to think like a system. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I was fortunate early on to have studied systems thinking and it kind of gave me a, a, a sense of, how it is, or like Thich Nhat Hanh, the interbeing, you know, mm-hmm. to trace things back to their origin. Yeah. It's a beautiful, Absolutely. yeah, it's a beautiful line in the, the Tao Te Ching says, mm-hmm. uh, trace, find the mother and trace, thing, trace the children back to their origin. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. This idea of going back to, you know, what is the origin there? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's see, what was I? Oh, I know what I wanted to talk about more. Um, I don't think people, a lot of people grasp what regenerative, we mentioned it, but 
but regenerative agriculture, what that actually is. I'm about to move to a farm here. I'm really excited. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I'm in uh, Nelson, D.C., and there's this wonderful farm that I ended up going to be moving to. It's 23 acres off in the mountains. So Nice. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I try to keep it at its simplest again. So let's just look at the word regeneration. So it's about regenerating the soil as opposed to extracting, basically. Um, And it also often is described in a way that's a step further than sustainability. So the concept of sustaining something for it to be able to be kind of ongoing is that uh, something that regenerates actually brings more back you actually have more so you get like greater abundance by giving back and putting back in so it's sort of like imagining regenerating all of the soil all in the united states for example or all over the world means that we are we are putting back with compost we are um and then again there are like there are tactics and ways so for example less tilling you know or tilling in very specific ways there are actually machines now that are no-till machines so there are ways to to plant differently and do these things like rodale does an incredible job of this gabe brown there's some great examples out there um so that, that's really that's the basics of regenerative agriculture it's it's agriculture that uh, we put back we tend to the soil it regenerates and allows this compost cycle rather than extractive which is like the fact that we're doing agriculture from an extractive way like pulling from the mother it's like mining you know which we're also doing um, that everything about capitalism is extractive and we're doing it to ourselves too as individuals we're extracting energy you know and so it's the other way around I actually wrote an article about um, regenerative life and it's in the book like how to live regeneratively it's also a perfect metaphor for the individual it's like we need enough sleep you know we need a healthy soundscape we need to regenerate in all of these ways um, to make it so we're not constantly extracting from ourselves so it's it's that and there's another piece that's also i feel like um very worth noting is that the the regenerative agriculture movement is uh, in this moment i think is actually growing um and healing a lot in a sense that it's returning the whole movement back around to indigenous lands and peoples and culture, because basically it's like regenerating the earth is not a new idea, right? It's like, <laughs> nobody invented that, yeah. you know, it's, a, it's, always like, it's not something like anybody takes credit for. It's like, oh, right. These are the original ways, right? These are, this is what indigenous peoples all over the world for all of time have always been saying this back to the mother's story, even though that's like, maybe it's a little more metaphorical and maybe a little more woo and a little more out there. Like the regenerative ag is, pretty concrete and it's like simplicity, uh, but it's all the same conversation. And we really are talking about getting back to the mother when we're talking about getting back to the soil. And we're doing that, we're getting back to healing with indigenous lands and people. And we're doing that, we're getting back to healing with ritual, ceremony, plant medicine, um, the teachings of the earth herself, you know? So it's all, that's all one big thing, um, but it comes out in these little snippets of how we enter from all different sides is my experience of it. Well, Aaron McMorrow, it is such a delight to be with you. I want to tell people your your website is AaronMcMorrow.com. Yep. Right. Yes. And uh, the book is again grounded: a fierce feminine guide to connecting to the soil and healing from the earth up. Mm-hmm. And just thank you so much for your work and for the tireless commitment you have mm-hmm. to uh, creating a world that works for everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. And likewise, thank you for yeah. having me on. It's been a Bless joy. You. We Earth Radio is an independently produced program supported by listeners like you. 
we are committed to bringing you leading-edge thinkers in the areas of environmental restoration, social justice, conscious evolution, and spiritual fulfillment. If you would like to receive our complimentary newsletter, The Well of Light, make a contribution, or listen to any of our past shows, go to our website, welloflight.com. Thank you so much for your commitment to a world that works for all life.